Welcome back. This is The Professor and The Hack. I'm The Hack, Hugh Remington. With me is The Professor, Peter Van Onselen. Hello. G'day, Hugh. Good to be here with you. On episode 37. Although we're face-to-face here, we're not doing this from remote studios, (laughs) you're coughing, it's a small space. I'm a little uncomfortable, I've got to be honest. Indeed. Well, I think we're all a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. And it's reached the stage where it's not funny. We can make our little jokes, PVO, or you can, Note to viewers and listeners, I'm not joking about it, but, uh, yeah, address them all to people. It's our humour that sustains us as a people. It it is indeed, It's the only thing we can do. Nice escape. Uh, (laughs) Coronavirus is now a thing. It's funny because we talked last week um, about a whole bunch of things, but one of them was I just had a sense that the markets were in for a tumble. Uh, and and I, there were a couple of reasons that I put up. I think up I was that. mocking you, wasn't I? Wasn't I saying that counts as a prediction? Yeah, yada yada. Yeah, yeah. But the difference between you and me, PVO, is that my predictions <laughs> come through. Oh, that's so harsh. Um, <laughs> harsh but fair, I think. Harsh but fair. Look, you know, I'm predicting a surplus. I'm predicting Morrison wins the next election. But anyway, we're talking about you're, you're now anti-predicting. Look, the the fact of it is, is that we're now in a thing. Mm. Uh, so. Uh, a lot of people have already died. They're in the thousands globally. They're dying in Australia. Um, there is, There are reports of panic buying of various things in the shops, including toilet paper. Whatever happens in the world, make sure you're not short on toilet paper. Can I, can I just make an, an – uh, it's not so much a confession as an outing of somebody else. Uh-oh. My wife is one of these panic buyers. Now, that's a little unfair because it's not in a state of panic that she does it, but she's one of these – be prepared, scout type personalities. Yeah, and so she loves a good crisis in that sense because it provides an opportunity to show how prepared she is. So I was away for last parliamentary sitting. I come back, and we're fully stocked up. We've got all the things you're talking about. We've got an abundance of Panadol to bring down temperature. We've got an abundance of toilet paper, some canned goods, various types of masks, if in case they run out when the time comes. It's a real mixture there of if it strikes, to try to avoid getting it, but also if you do get it, to try to then mitigate it and manage it, hoping that it's a mild dose rather than anything more serious. But this is what she's always been like. You know, less than halfway into the pregnancy, she had her bag packed to be able to go to the hospital just as well, actually, because our oldest daughter was premature, so we were ready to roll. But she is one of those people. But She she's knows not, how to predict the future. She's not as crazy as the panic merchants who do it. For her, though, it is that sort of without ever having been one, it's that sort of Boy Scout be prepared thing. So she's she's well, one of them. There are two things to say to that. One is that uh, when the shit goes down, as they say, PVO, we're turning up to your house, so be ready. Uh, let us through the <laughs> sandbags at the front door. Half of our friendship group have already said the same thing. So I, I keep telling my wife that it's less preparation and more just subsidising the unprepared, me included, by the way. But Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is, is that the panic... I'm told by a senior doctor at a major hospital, has spread to actual hospital staff. Right. So the hospital that he's working at, uh, he says that uh, they've had to take measures to stop staff nicking masks right. and hand gels and other goodies. Medical professionals. Med- I mean, medical professionals and people working in the hospital are, uh, are, are going through that thing. So certainly something has gripped. Now, I don't know what part of that. I mean, that's a better anecdote than mine. I don't know what part of that I find more disturbing that you've got medical staff thinking that they want to stock up, the fact that they steal stuff, uh, or just the overall situation that that leaves us in. Anyway. Well, well, I mean, the interesting thing about this is that, um, and we'll get into the substance, but is is that the modelling on a 
a, a real outbreak, a contagion is such that at quite an early stage in it, normal order breaks down. Mm. And that's because, for example, you know, people don't turn up to work at hospitals. Teachers certainly don't turn up to school. Uh, so people don't turn up to work anymore wherever they are because those with kids have got to look after their kids. There's nowhere else to send them. The police don't turn up to things because they're getting sick uh, or they don't want to get more sick. Suddenly it goes onto the stage where you, the supply chains are completely broken down. Then you wind up with looting for food. We saw this in New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina back in 2005. It doesn't, there's a certain point when things break down, when it suddenly totally breaks down. This has been the stuff of a million uh, dystopia novels mm. and, and, and movies over the years, but it's a real thing and it, it does happen. We're nowhere near that. Let's all calm down. What we have got though is a genuine challenge, um, an economic and a public health challenge for the Scott Morrison government. And given that this is a politics podcast, uh, how has he gone about doing it? And uh, what, are the, what are the key messages that you've picked up that he wants us to draw from it? Well, at the moment, his primary aim seems to be to try to ensure that panic isn't what follows, but still taking some pretty significant action and comparable to other nations around the world, going further in many respects. Now, Cynics of Scott Morrison say he's doing that for political posturing and, and all the rest of it. I'm actually not cynical on this one. I think that his personality type, rightly or wrongly, and I probably support it rather than don't on this occasion, but I think his personality type flowing on from his approach to things like Operation Sovereign Borders and all the rest of it is a sort of lockdown one of trying to ensure uh, risk mitigating and conservative caution and all the rest of it. And I think that shows in his fast reaction compared to other countries when it came to locking down borders vis-a-vis China, extending it to Iran. Not Italy, though, which I think is interesting, and we can perhaps talk about that because there does seem to be some double standards there. But he wants to be acting more swiftly than not because he doesn't want to be late on things. However, he's trying to, and this is the hard political act, he's trying to balance acting swiftly with not causing panic and letting his rhetoric really try to calm the nerves of people because he doesn't want to feed it's a tough panic act. that's already there. It's a very tough act, and it is contradictory. Let's be clear about it. But I actually agree with the double-pronged strategy, even though it is contradictory, because I do like the idea that we're ahead of the curve in terms of being cautious in our preparation to try to minimise the contagion here. But I also know that a leader has to, even if it's a little bit disingenuous, they do have to calm people down because otherwise panic feeds panic and that almost becomes the worst thing. It goes back to that uh, Roosevelt quote during the Great Depression, you know, about fear being the biggest thing that, that people need to we worry about. We have nothing to fear but, but fear, fear itself. itself. That's right. Mm. And, of course, one of the things he's got to do politically, and, and, and this seems almost cheap to mention, but he was disastrous in a crisis at the start of the bushfires calamitously so. Because he went overseas. Because he went on holiday and he didn't seem to be in much of a hurry to come back and he came up with all those glib lines like, I don't carry, hold a hose, mate. Hugh, this crisis suits Scott Morrison because with the contagion around the world, you wouldn't want to go on an overseas holiday. No risk. <laughs> I mean, he he has an opportunity and I don't, you know, I, 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 I totally get the cynicism about seeing 
a, a, you know, what may soon be a pandemic being seen as a political opportunity, but there is an opportunity for him here to show that, in fact, he can manage a crisis. Yeah, and rebuild his leadership credentials. All that Absolutely. stuff. The, the, the downside is, is let, let's, I mean, there are two downsides. I hate to see things where people die seen only in apolitical terms, but also in purely financial and economic terms. People mm. are dying and there's all kinds of suffering and sadness that goes with that. Not dying in monumental numbers, it must be said, but it's not much relief for the family members. Um, but there is a huge economic impact. We're already feeling it. Uh, we're seeing it on the markets, which have been, uh, you know, Big looking time. for an, an, another week of really, really strong falls. Where are we going to fetch up out of this, do you think? Gee, it's so hard to know, isn't it? Uh, but as you say, the markets have taken a really major correction, uh, a formal correction, as it were. The surplus looks like it, it might be gone. Uh, a recession's not out of the woods, far from it being out of the woods as an option. Uh, the We will find out... Uh, mid this week, as we podcast on the Wednesday, uh, what the results are from the final economic quarter from 2019. So the numbers for December, they take a while to come in. They won't be too bad. They won't be great, but they won't be too bad because they'll only pick up a little bit of the bushfires and none of this. It's the March quarter that's going to be fascinating because that's going to pick up a lot of the bushfires and a lot of this. There's still a month or so to go before the March quarter numbers are finished, but we won't hear about them until June, which is after the May budget. That may well be a negative growth quarter, which means that if we get one more, which would be when we're in the heart of the coronavirus impact on the economy writ large, we could get a second one and that would be a formal recession. So there's all of that to look forward to, if you like, uh, and that's if things don't get that much worse. That's if they just sort of roughly stay where they are. And most um, you know, most science experts are telling us that it will get quite a bit worse before it gets better, which means that you have the flow on economic impact as well. So I just, I'm not game to make a prediction on where yeah, this it's goes. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you mentioned the Roosevelt line, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And he wasn't talking about a pandemic. No. He wasn't talking about disease. He was talking about recession. He was talking about the Deep Depression, the Great Depression of uh, of the early 30s, from 1929 on. So in a sense, what we talk about in terms of our responses to a, an epidemic um, are the same when it comes to the economy because, you know, a number of things may take place over the next little while, one of them being an attempt to contain, if this takes hold a little bit, to contain large gatherings. So sports events, major, even major conferences, but even schools could mm. start to close. Um, and then when that happens, it becomes a critical moment because that's when parents have to stop going to work. And that's what you were talking about before, Hugh, in terms of the economic effect that this can have. I mean, let, let's, and we're not doing this, but let's not downplay the health significance, even though it is low. You know, this isn't, for example, Ebola, where you get Ebola and, you know, you invariably almost certainly die, but it's harder to get. This is one that's easier to get, but hopefully, fingers crossed for most people, harder for it to result in death uh, or even serious illness. But it's still significant. So the common flu, I mean, it's not the common cold, the flu, which is serious. Anyone that's had a cold who hasn't had the flu doesn't know what we're talking about. Anyone that's had the flu realises just how bloody bad it is. I've only had it once in my life, but God, it was shocking. Now, 0.1% of people in Australia die from the flu. Not very many, but one in a thousand. The view about that, that's of those who get the flu, who get the flu, right? Yeah, so one in a thousand people who get the flu die. Now, most of them are the elderly or the very, very young. 
And the coronavirus, it's the elderly, not the young, interestingly, but that's a whole other discussion. But it's at the moment anywhere between 2 and 3% of people who get the coronavirus who are dying. But the expectation from most experts is that it's actually probably closer to 1% because we're hearing about the deaths not as much as we're hearing about how many people actually have it. So in other words, the 2 to 3% is inflated through cover-up, if you like, or, or lack of awareness of people that already have it. If it is 1%, that makes it 10 times more deadly than the flu. Now, the flu only killing 1 in 1,000, that would mean that the coronavirus if it takes hold, kills one in a hundred. That's not insignificant. Now, the whole nation isn't going to get the coronavirus, fingers crossed, but if it does, we're talking a quarter of a million people dying. So if this thing gets caught by everybody, just on the simple maths, and this isn't even the conservative maths, this is the hopeful maths of only 1%, a quarter of a million people die. Now, I don't say that to panic us because everyone almost certainly won't get it, but there are some genuine predictions that one fifth of the country might get it. Or Five more. million yes, people. I, well, I've heard serious yeah. ones up to, up for, you know, from biosecurity experts, professors in this field who say it could go up as high as seventy percent. And they've looked at uh, modelling on fifty percent. Uh, they've said that that would produce six hundred and fifty thousand ICU beds, intensive care beds, and and we have only low thousands mm. of ICU beds in the country. So, in other words, the system would be swamped. The system gets swamped. People are dying. Uh, panic, which perhaps listeners have at the moment, even just when you put it in these terms, panic sets in. And, and then that's when you then get to that sort of elements of social breakdown. I'm not talking, as you say, like in a movie or in a book, but certainly to the economy uh, and certainly to the well-being index that people would have in terms of their lives, working lives, uh, social lives, uh, sporting lives. It just falls apart you for can, a short time. You can certainly see that <clears throat> if you combine it with a recession, uh, the disruptive element of it means that, say, a whole bunch of businesses that are just marginal but keeping on going, and, and this is what happens when you have a recession, is it's those that are staggering on or those that are already subject to disruption um, are the ones that will then fall over and then you get new green grass starts to emerge at the other side of all of that. But that's a lot of hardship in a lot of people's lives. And if you've got people staying at home, if they're not spending money, um, you, you know, definitely you could see that for a number, for, for a great number of Australians, that this coming year is going to have an enormous amount of uncertainty. And let me say this. So if, like, even on my very conservative numbers, if it's only one-fifth of Australians who get it, and that's five million, and if it is only a 1% mortality rate, that means we're talking 50,000 people dying. That's a hell of a number. And that's the people who pass from it. That's not the people who get it and get sick and utilise the facilities as they should and would hope to in a developed country like ours. So my point about all of that is if the experts are telling us that it could be anywhere from a fifth of people to even more, as you've pointed out, Hugh, and if the experts are telling us that it could be as much as 3% or as few as 1% of people who will pass away from it, I'm actually, therefore, if it can work, a strong advocate for early intervention to shut the borders, even with all the pain that comes from that, to try to prevent what I've just described as a least bad case scenario from eventuating. Now, they're not two good options. You'd want to get some damn good advice that you can stop it to be preemptive if that doesn't end up being what because transpires. Because that destroys all your education, your tourism... You know, oh, if you're yeah. shutting your borders, you're done. But you, it's worse than that if the numbers that the experts are telling us transpire. 
So if you can stop it by shutting your borders with all the pain that comes from it, I'm forgiving of politicians making that decision. They're tough decisions, aren't they? Because if you don't... One of the things about this particular disease which makes it difficult is that you can have no symptoms whatsoever uh, and still be... uh, Infectious, you can be still mm. infecting people around you, and and that's what makes it so difficult. Once you start to get into community transmission, as they call it, which is uh, where it's not directly from someone who's come back from Wuhan or a close relative of theirs, but where suddenly, and we're seeing this already happen in the United States, people people are suddenly crook. Uh, they've got it, they're, they're testing positive for it, and they've got it, f- no one knows who they got it from, and then they're passing it on, and that starts to happen. And at that point, anyone who starts to run a bit of a temperature and runny nose um, Worries. Is, head- is, is not just staying at home for a day or two. They are at that point heading off to hospital. And this is linking towards. up with the flu season about to start as well, where your immune system may already be down anyway. Uh, you know, experts are recommending to get that flu shot uh, partly for that reason in the context of the coronavirus as well. Uh, it, it's very, it, it is genuinely worrying to me, even though I'm not panicked about it in the in the sense of recognising that the numbers are small and all the rest of it. But small numbers for a highly contagious illness are actually significant because it will touch all of us to some extent, potentially. Well, and the other thing about it is when you think small numbers, that's pretty good. You can count yourself out in that calculation. Uh, But my wife at the moment is immunocompromised, as they say. She's undergoing chemo for cancer, uh, travelling well, but she's in the the full bald head state and uh, highly susceptible to disease. And, uh, you know... We can't get masks, you can't get the hand gels. They've all been sold out in the streets. And so I can tell you that there would be many, many thousands of other people in the same situation. Uh, at the moment in this situation thinking, how do we protect? We've got three young kids that are going off to school, they're coming home from school. Once you start to get to community transmission, mm. um, we've got you know, very serious questions about how we can go about sandbagging our household to keep my wife. At 45 years old, safe and well. Yeah, but, I mean, that is, I mean, as you well know, that is a serious issue Mm -hmm. um, because her being where she's at puts her in that category of the elderly. Um, My my wife, my parents have passed away, but my wife's mother, my mother-in-law, you know, she's elderly, frail. She's been through um, cancer herself and and is now um, out the other side of it, fortunately, but she's very, very frail for her age, and she's already elderly. So, you know, somebody like that um, as well is right in the in the line of fire with this. Well, uh, we pass best wishes and peace out to anyone anxious at this, uh, this moment. We're going to take a little break and talk about other politics of the day. You're listening to The Professor and the Hack. Hey, Husey here. Can't get enough of Husey. We have a problem. Well, here we are to help you even more. We've got a podcast. Find it at your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. This is The Professor and the Hack, episode 37, coronavirus, in, and all its impacts are mm. uh, very much in our mind. But there is other politics going on and, and sports rorts. You have uh, made it your point, PVO, to, um, uh, to stay on top of this one. And no matter how bad the coronavirus pandemic gets, Hugh, we don't give up on sports rorts because it is an issue. But sorry, I interrupted. No, not at all. I mean, more is emerging. This is something where I, I, you kind of get the feeling that Scott Morrison goes, God, are people still talking about this? This is such a low-rent scandal. There have been so many bigger scandals. I can tell you of scandals ten times the size of this. And yet uh, the very fact that more emerges of the sheer shabbiness 
of the way in which our money gets used by politicians. Uh, We're all aware they all do it, but this is is a case where the trail, the, the breadcrumbs lead to the Prime Minister's office. Oh, it is just, and, and if if Scott Morrison or someone in his vastly oversized entourage as political staffing officers are these days is listening in when they should be working, uh, look, it is ridiculous. Why? Because they're not doing anything to fix it. That's why it's still going. It might be a relatively low-level scandal by this by the scale of some scandals, but that's comparing it to scandals where action follows because of the scandal. This one... There is no action that has followed. Bridget McKenzie's departure... That's the real scandal. That's the scandal. Bridget McKenzie's departure was on a fig leaf reason and it suited them to get rid of her to try to end the scandal without actually acting to do anything about it. Now we hear the Prime Minister from time to time throwing her under the bus when questioned about sports rorts, saying, I knew nothing. Why? Because it was the sports minister who handled it, as though that's an answer. Well, hang on. He's not admitting that what the sports minister handled was ever wrong. So her departure on a separate reason, a conflict of interest, doesn't absolve him or her or or the government or anything of this scandal. And what have we learned since? We've now got 136 emails that have been flying back and forth between the sports minister's office and the prime minister's office, yet the PM expects us to believe that all his office's involvement was was passing on constituent inquiries. That doesn't sound like it. We've then got correspondence from her office directly to the prime minister's office on the eve of the election and on the eve of her approval of the grants that were all deemed ineligible, by the way, or at least a large chunk of them were by Sport Australia. Why would she do that? Why would her office do that? Unless, as Labor says, it was to get formal approval from the Prime Minister's office. That's a question mark that we need more answers around. We've now found out the head of the department, who's incidentally retired, uh, destroyed her notes. Her words, not mine. She didn't even just say lost her notes. She destroyed them, Hugh. That sounds like there's something going on there. We need more answers to that. We don't have them yet. And as I finish my rant... Why would you destroy notes unless you felt they are embarrassing to someone? Exactly. I don't know. I can't answer that. So she's destroyed her notes. She had a bit of a smirk on her face at the Senate committee when she was asked about that when she said it. Anyway, she's retired, off into the sunset. We've got a swimming pool in North Sydney right under the Harbour Bridge, which has received millions of dollars in regional grant funding. The The argument, apparently, is that people from the bush use the swimming pool when they come to the city. The Prime Minister happens, by pure coincidence, to use that as his local swimming pool. We've got footage of him there with his swimming cap on and all the rest of it, we've got an ineligible grant given to a sports facility in Scott Morrison's own electorate, deemed ineligible by Sport Australia. The money allocated, wait for it, Hugh, allocated after it had already been built. I mean, at the very least, more has to happen. And what have we got? We've had an investigation by Scott Morrison's former political chief of staff, Phil Gaitchens, the head of his Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, which no one's allowed to see. It hasn't been released publicly. It won't be released publicly. The Cabinet isn't allowed to see it, even though it's been marked a Cabinet document. And then suddenly, of course, we have these colour-coded spreadsheets that have been released as well, heavily redacted, mind you, so you can't see the good stuff. But apparently there's nothing not to see amongst all the heavily redacted bits. We don't need to be worried. Yeah, because, because that makes sense, doesn't it? Because because when you want to prove that there was nothing dodgy about the system, the best way to prove that is by covering all the detail in mm. thick black ink. It, <laughs> it, it, and you'll like this because you were political editor in Canberra bef- before before I've moved into this role, Hugh. So I'm sitting there in my office and a member of the PM's entourage walks in 
and has a chat about the 136 emails, trying to convince me that there's nothing untoward about that. And I said, okay, no problem. Show them to me. Oh, well, we can't do that. We're not going to get in the business of showing them. Okay, well, then why would I believe you? Well, you know, because there's nothing untoward in them. Well, if you're not prepared to show me, then I'm not prepared to take you at your word, particularly after Hawaii, by the way, where these guys didn't tell us where he really was uh, and already showed their inability to stay straight to the truth. So, you know, these are the conversations that I'm about to head off to enjoy yeah. again this week in Canberra. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? There's nothing more trustworthy than the anonymous steer of a political staffer. <laughs> you can absolutely know that's roll gold, take it to the bank truth. Uh, perhaps we're being too cynical, but we've uh, we've been parties to those conversations a few times. Now, other matters that have turned up, and I, and I, I think they're worth just touching on, is that we had the uh, head of ASIO, Mike Burgess, give the report, which every Australian should pay at least passing attention to, the mm. threats that are perceived to the security of the nation. And they come in the form of foreign interference and foreign espionage, um, they're not saying it, but everyone knows that it's China at the front of that pack. But also that terrorism remains a significant threat to Australia. And it comes from two sources, uh, from Islamist terrorism, which is still a threat, and also from rising right-wing extremism. And this is of concern. Now, straight away out of the blocks, Peter Dutton, the Home Affairs Minister, the man with unprecedented peacetime powers to control security matters and to... Um, and to frame the whole legal business of, of, of keeping us safe, theoretically, starts talking about left-wing threats and is sprung and says, because there's nothing in the Burgess briefing that says anything about left-wing terrorism, yeah. which he explains as saying, oh, well, he, you know, well, that, well, that would include Islamic terrorism, and which is an absurd notion to anyone who's even the passing, the, mm. the, the most fleeting notion that somehow... Um, ISIS, uh, the enslaver and raper of women, the people who take lefties. the people who take, you know, homosexuals and throw them off buildings, um, have anything to do with with progressive politics. But that was again the the argument that he seemed willing to make, or certainly not walk away from, when he turned up on insiders at the weekend. What do we make of a political world in which important truths are being told to us by serious people? like Mike Burgess at ASIO, which are then immediately in plain sight, twisted for a what, what can only be seen as a shabby political sort of hit and smear and misdirect by a person with the enormous powers and responsibilities of the Home Affairs Minister. Well, you know, with a sigh, I, I guess my, my reaction is that unfortunately that form of reaction to expert commentary is all too common in the political class, uh, you know, Peter Dutton's an exponent of it, but he's not Robinson Crusoe. And that's part of the problem here is that the politicisation of non-political expert views that are offered uh, and analysis that is provided is all too common. Now, it's always been there. But it's well, become worse, you know. And I mean, I, we've seen a lot about it with climate change. Has been an area yeah. in which in which experts have been disdained at, at a furious rate. But I think if in the Trump era, it's worse. Yeah, I think the Trump era is worse, and I think people people are picking up on techniques and tricks that Trump will do. But you would think that for a government that has done very well at uh, convincing the Australian people that they will keep the coalition will keep you safer than the other mob, they don't need it. Is this your point? They don't need to do it like that. They don't need to make it partisan. Well, well, they win anyway if that's 
what we're talking about. Why don't is when when can the truth be enough? Well, you see, it should be. I mean, if you look at the data uh, and the, the the history of of the left versus the right, if I could put it in those blunt terms, it's not quite analogous, but between Labor and Liberal in the partisan contest in Australia, Liberals do well when the economy is being discussed, as is national security, and they can use it to whack the other mob over the head with it and say, we do this better than you, we protect Australia better than you when it comes to terrorism or we manage the economy better than you do. Now, whether either is true or not is not the point. The data tells us that people think those two things are true and I think that they just need to play it straight but with a partisan bent like that as opposed to try to talk about left-wing threats of terrorism or or left-wing this or that within the economy. They don't need to do that. Liberals win when the economy is being discussed, even if the economy is tanking, because the data tells us that people worry that now is not the time to put Labor in charge because things that are bad will get even worse, even if that Liberal government's policies are perhaps making things worse. At least initially, that's the response of voters. And the same goes with with the responses to terrorism. So for Peter Dutton to try to make it about left-wing this or that, it's, it's pointless to me and it's actually counterproductive to their successful politics. Except that it means that he doesn't have to talk about the real threat, which is right-wing extremism. And it's almost as if a man who has stood on this whole image as being the person who keeps us safe from lunatics and extremists, when confronted with the pure evidence that one of the two major threats of terrorism Mm. is coming now, as we know that it is, from right-wing extremism, and he doesn't want to talk about it. And that that should be a worry. That's his job is to talk about what the threats are and talk, talk to us about it straight. See, I think politically he shouldn't be afraid of right-wing terrorism as something that the coalition can still win on because even though there will be sections, particularly of the intelligentsia, that will make the point that, well, you stoke that when you stoke right-wing tensions in particular policy spheres, overall in the mainstream I still think that they would win that political debate were they to call it out on the extreme right. I, I think they should That's what do. Howard Absolutely used to do. Absolutely they Howard should used do. to do that and yep. he did it quite successfully and it actually irked a lot of people on the left or even just the soft left as opposed to the hard left. It irked them that he would, if you like, defeat Hansenism by playing a little bit to Hanson's supporters and by bringing them into the mainstream by moving his version of the mainstream a little bit further to the right. But he nonetheless did, through that technique, defeat Hansenism. And then it's come back and it's because the right of the mainstream doesn't seem to know how to deal with the far right and the extreme right in the way that it once did, in the way that it once did, which is not, by the way, to suggest that Pauline Hanson is that far to the right, but she is further to the right yeah, than and, the mainstream. And it's an important point to make is that the coalition are not right-wing extremists, no matter what you might read on Twitter from mm. time to time. And so, therefore, they've got nothing. They lose nothing by saying there are mad lunatics out there who claim to be right-wing, they're, they're white supremacists, they're all these other kind of characters, they're part of a, uh, the enemy of, of us as a common uh, polity, of us as a community, and we're going to go out hard against it. And the fact that he doesn't do it to me uh, disturbs more than a little. Peter, we're out of time. Um, good luck this week. It's going to be a big run. It is. We'll talk again soon. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. 